Almighty God, we pray that you would allow your word to do its work within our hearts and minds. That as we consider Jesus, we would be moved to want to be more like him. For it's for his sake we pray. Amen. Do please take a seat. Well, do please find uh, that reading, if you would. It's on page two thousand. Uh, sorry, page one thousand two hundred and fifteen. In an early episode of Yes, Minister, the minister's private secretary says, oh, well, it's one of those irregular verbs, isn't it? I have an independent mind. You are an eccentric. He is round the twist. (laughs) Well, there are, in our reading this morning, good guys. They are the humble, wise. And there are bad guys, the envious and quarrelsome. Last week, Alex preached on the section before, on speech, and I'm guessing that all of us could see ourselves more or less as careless with our speaking. This week, the problem is different. In order to identify ourselves with the bad guys, we have to be so much more wicked, and we may not want to recognize it. And that leads to a set of irregular verbs. I am ambitious for the good of the church. You are unspiritual. He is quarrelsome and inclined to fight. The further off end of the behavior of the bad guys in our reading from James today within our series is so bad that even if we were guilty of it, we would want to call it something else to protect ourselves. And that can mean that we don't let what James does have to say to us get near enough. We protect ourselves from everything. The bad behavior in this passage, does James really mean us? It's very extreme. Well, therefore it must be about other people. And yet I'm not so sure. There's a reference in the... um, Uh, text to killing as something that goes on within Christian congregations. And during the break, after having had the same sermon in the early service, someone said to me that his own wife had had her faith killed off by something someone said to her once in a church far away. If faith is killed off, What are we doing but killing one another? So the very extremity need not put us off listening properly to what James says. Last week was about speech. Today is much more about deeds. Everything said last week derives from chapter 3 and verse 1. Not many should presume to teach. That is, to exercise that clear public function. But now, everything derives from verse 13. 
who among you is wise. So it's still that there may be some sort of public leadership role in view, but the judgments that qualify you for this leadership are not, can this person use their tongue to teach, but rather does this person use their life to demonstrate wisdom? It's much bigger, and the judgments involved may be more subtle. There is, in the churches with which James is concerned, the kind of person who wants a position for themselves, but does so out of bitter envy there in verse 14. It's concealed under a denial of what is happening. It's the kind of person that might say, while guarding all kinds of extremity in their heart, they, it would come out as, well, you have to understand, I'm ambitious for the church, not for me. And in that way, the person denies the truth. What they have to offer is, according to verse 15, earthly, unspiritual of the devil. And there's an illustration immediately. None of us wants to say we're of the devil. So, can that mean that we're unspiritual? Well, no, because that means being of the devil. And if we're, un- of the- we we're not of the devil, so we can't be unspiritual. We can't be earthly. And so we protect ourselves from these extremes in James. And yet he is deliberately extreme. There are only two realms in what he writes, the earthly and the heavenly. If you belong to one, you don't really belong to the other. Just like last week's illustration, do you remember it, of salt water and fresh water? It's characteristic of humanity, as James diagnoses us, to be double-minded, to think we can get the best of both worlds. But if you mix salt water and fresh water, what you end up with is salt water. You've tried to mix something but you've ended up with only one of them. And similarly, if you try to mix the earthly and the heavenly, you will in the end only end up with the earthly. And so Jesus is careful to point out in the Gospel reading in John 18 and verse 36 that his kingdom is not from this world. Now, I, I, I wasn't going to spend a lot of time on this, but we've got a bit more time than in the early service, so perhaps I will. There's a, a very interesting little issue of translation goes on in John 18, 36. Uh, you can turn to it if you like, but it, it's so small that it's the explaining that's the interesting bit. Jesus said his, his kingdom is not of this world. Uh, and we assume that what that means is that his kingdom is somewhere else. That he doesn't have a kingdom here on earth. His kingdom is somewhere else. It's not of this world. But the original word, tiny little world, just as short in Greek as it is in English, ek, it doesn't mean of this world. There were lots of ways of saying not of this world. Didn't need that word. If he uses the word, what he means is the kingdom is not from this world. In other words, the origin of his kingdom is not this world. But he is in no way denying that he has a kingdom in this world. If we say Jesus, if we have Jesus saying, my kingdom is not of this world, 
we can end up ourselves aiming for an otherworldly kingdom. Whereas if we say, my kingdom is not from this world, which is, I think, the better translation, then what we're recognizing is that Jesus is king of all of it, earthly and heavenly. He is the only one who strides both. The origin is from heaven. And once the origin is from heaven, then you can have the earth as well. But we cannot, where we sit, bestride both any more than we can mix salt water and fresh water and have something that is a third thing or neither. It is perhaps less likely at this service than the earlier one. But I have a plea, if any of you come from a Baptist background, that when you come to Holy Trinity, you bring to us the full strength of your Baptist heritage more than you do. Because so often the issues between Baptists and Anglicans end up being about whether you baptize babies, and that's got very little to do with the full strength of being a Baptist. A good Baptist knows their 16th century heritage and knows that the Baptist world was set up, or the Baptist church was established precisely to be the kingdom of God on earth. There are a few problems, like it never could be. Nonetheless, it was the passion and desire that the church should be purified from its worldliness that gave impetus to the Baptist movement in the 16th and 17th centuries. So if you do have a Baptist heritage, I want to ask you when you come among us to be a better Baptist and to work and to plead and to work, to work again and to pray that we should recognize the kingdom that is not from this world. It is the gift of the Church of England to steer a little closely to the world in order to be an agent of salvation if God is pleased to use her for those who are too much in the world. But the vocation of the Baptist church is different and should be mighty and powerful. Because to be earthly, James is a kind of Baptist. To be earthly for James is to be unspiritual. Well, we might admit to that. And we are with that verse 15 earthly, unspiritual of the devil. But that last bit spoils it. And if it sounds to us like we can't be of the devil, so we can't be earthly and spiritual either, but we can be just that. He means that the origin, that is, uh, the origin of all that is unspiritual is the realm of evil where the devil reigns. Behind some mild request to be a little less spiritual. And as a canon of the cathedral, I know well the desire that is expressed that the cathedral should, from time to time, should be just a a little less spiritual. But behind that mild request lies the full force of the demonic realm. It is not possible for the Christian finally to be both spiritual and earthly. Earthliness means looking at others and assessing relative status against others 
and so we end up with envy. That word that comes in verse 16 of chapter 3 and at the beginning of chapter 4. Envy leads to strife. How much strife? Well, verse 2 of chapter 4 says, you kill and you covet. I might get you to recognize coveting, but could you please put your hands in the air if you've killed anyone this week? Since you probably haven't killed, it's harder to see even coveting. But he may, of course, mean it only with that extremity that Jesus himself employs. Jesus says to be angry is to wish someone out of the way, eliminated. It belongs with that extreme Jewish style of if your eye offends you, pluck it out. And in verse 4 of chapter 4, James introduces another way of putting it. You adulterous people. Friendship with the world is hatred towards God. And if he has said adultery, then that gives a tone to the friendship involved. It's a flirtation. Don't give yourself out to follow Jesus while flirting with the world. What are you watching on television? What are you speaking or thinking about? It's one of the strongest warnings in the New Testament against sin. And again, it is this sense of doubleness. To be adulterous is to be married to one person, but looking elsewhere. It is the guilt of the people of Israel time and time again. And it's an extraordinary response that it meets in God. Look at verse 5 of chapter 4. Do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? Amazingly, he responds by reminding us that God has feelings. God has placed, if you will follow Jesus, his spirit, his Holy Spirit, within each one of us. And God is jealous for that spirit. He wants that spirit to to flourish where it has been placed. But if we are flirting with the world, then his spirit is dampened and disordered and squashed, unable to do the work that God wants for his spirit. So, so James puts it, uses that word envy, but now in a good way. God himself envies, is jealous for the life of his spirit within you and me. He wants that spirit to flourish. Well, that's the bad guys and God's response. Let's finish by looking at the good guys. There's an emphasis on the activity of peacemaking there at the end of verse, uh, uh, chapter 3, verse 18. And it's needed precisely because there are fights and quarrels at the beginning of chapter 4. As there would be among us if we weren't such terribly polite English people. And the wisdom uh, that James is speaking of here is not a general wisdom, but it is wisdom within the life of the local church. I want to commend to you our church wardens. Uh, I can see a number of former wardens in the congregation. Uh, Having been nice about Baptists, let me be nice about the Church of England. 
Church wardens are one invention of the Church of England that I think we get right. Their job above all others is guarding the peace of the church. Everything else can be delegated, but not that. In our church, congregations do not appoint ministers. So the possibility is of tension and church wardens guard the peace, both within the congregation and between the congregation and ministers. And I commend to you our church wardens for prayer. I also ask you, who do you know who is a good peacemaker? It's not the same, I think this is important, it is not the same merely as being peaceable or peaceful. Sometimes those are not the best makers of peace. There's a lovely word that connects to this in chapter 3 and verse 17, considerate. You can see why they used a short word, because the, the precise meaning is this. Not making a big deal out of something that doesn't need a big deal making, even when a few people want a big deal making of it. That's what that word means means someone who is considerate with people because they know the true scale of what matters. That is church warden, amongst other things, and many others too, one hopes. But as we pray towards a new church warden, I commend that thought to you. All of it comes from a proper humility. It's there in verse 13 of chapter 3, a sober estimation of one's own sinfulness before God's holiness, so that we don't puff ourselves up. Indeed, the cure for what's amiss at the end of our passage is about pride and humility, and the cure will become clearer next week. Humble yourselves, James says. There was a 17th century Jewish philosopher called Spinoza. He said this, (coughs) I have often wondered that persons who make boast of professing the Christian religion, namely love, joy, peace, temperance, and charity for all people, should quarrel with such rancorous animosity and display daily to each other such bitter hatred that this becomes the readiest criteria of their faith. As we end, I want to ask this. How would it seem to someone who watched you for a month? Last week was about how someone might listen to you. But this week, it's someone who watched what you did. Would they conclude, like Spinoza did, that you were earthly, unspiritual, that you displayed animosity, Or would they conclude that you were indeed of the Spirit, not earthly-minded? Friendship with the world, so far in James, is shown by uh, prejudice against others, first part of chapter 2, speaking badly of others, second part of, sorry, first part of chapter 3, showing envy of others, second part of chapter 3, quarrelling with others, beginning of chapter 4. And he has to say, put it right, stop it, do not behave that way. And if we turn around and say, how? I point you to the one point in this reading, 
where we find an answer. It's at the beginning of of chapter 4, verse 6. But he, that's God, gives more grace. It is unlikely that we have killed in the last week. But there may well be sins that we have shown forth in the last week that run deep into who we are. Offences of speech, envy, quarrelling, or prejudice. (coughs) Deep patterns that come up again and again to the point where we can despair of ever giving up our flirting with the world. But James says don't despair because God gives more grace. Some deep patterns may need some accountability. But he is deliberately playing in this passage with two kinds of envy, the bitter, bad envy that the world has to offer and the good envy of God for his spirit that he has placed within us. And if you and I wrestle with those deep patterns, with the spirit of God living inside, then it is impossible that God will fail to show more grace. So do not despair. Do not give up. Continue to wrestle with those deep patterns so that if someone watches you for the next month, what they will see is that you too do not have your origin from this world's kingdom. Let's pray. Lord God, in this service we offer the body and blood of Christ, but it is also bread and wine to say that because of Jesus, the things of this world can be turned to the account of his kingdom. And as we take in bread and wine, we pray that we ourselves may be turned always to the account of your kingdom and serve you with a humble heart all our days. Amen.